Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 121 today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the sun and solar energy with our good buddy and friend of the show, Tom Lane. Uh, you've probably seen Tom Lane on our podcast before having to do with sacred mushroom rituals and his travels down to Mexico and dealing with uh, Maria Sabina and all that. Um, we have four episodes dedicated to all that. Go check those out on our channel. Uh, but we're going to do something different on this one and talk about solar energy and the sun. Um, te- check out uh, Tom Wolf's or <laughs> Tom Wolf, uh, Tom Lane's uh, website, solarwolf.org. Uh, and um, I have that down below as well. Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive content. We also have a couple uh, uploads of there with Tom if you're interested in that. And. Um, Hit the subscribe button and like button, and uh, we're off. So, what's going on, Tom? Glad to have you back on. Well, it's glad to be on. Uh, you know, I worked from 1977 to about almost uh, 2018 in the solar industry, mm. and I especially did a lot of remote and off-grid stuff. And I think it's important for people to know about the solar tax credits before they end in the next year or so, and also about tiny homes and small homes and how they can determine what's the appropriate size for a solar system that they can that they can get. But I think it would be nice to start the program talking about how some of the ancient civilizations integrated solar as a way into their buildings from the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, And, uh, you know, even here in the Americas, the American Indians and a lot of even the pioneers and people, it wasn't until central heating and cooling, especially air conditioning and and heating got invented, that people sort of got dumb about the orientation to the sun. Yeah, I mean, it's super fascinating. And obviously, we've talked about on this podcast before ancient sun worship and ancient civilizations correlations to the sun um who do you think did the sun out of all the ancient civilizations and all your knowledge of each civilization who do you think understood the sun the best if you will or had the best concept of building in regards to the sun well, I really don't think there was one civilization because a lot of it was common sense. You know, if you look at the Egyptians, if you look at the Aztecs, if you look at the Romans, if you look at the Greeks, and even the Navajos, they understood where they were were on the earth as regards especially latitude and the type of climatic conditions they lived in. And... A lot of this is just common sense when you're observing the sun and you don't have air conditioning and heating. And so a lot of the cities were designed so that the sun not only would shine down certain streets, 
but actually shine into certain windows. And for instance, the Navajos, they built these cliff dwellings where in the summer, the whole place was in the shadow mm-hmm. of the cliff. But then when uh, winter came around, they were getting all this solar energy in. And, you know, the equinox is March 21st and September 21st, equal day and equal night. So as a general rule, after that time, between September 21st and March 21st, in hot climates, you know, people were trying to make sure the sun came in because that was the colder time of year. And then to have it shaded in the, uh, like, uh, summertime. For instance, you couldn't take a building. Let's just say this building's 20 by 60. And you put it out in the middle of an open field, which, of course, wouldn't be a good idea, and you spin it. If the long side, 20 by 60, if the 60-foot side is going to have the sun hitting it as the sun comes up and goes down, you'll have triple the bill that you had the 20-foot side. Because what a lot of people don't realize, it's the last two or three hours of the day and the first two or three hours of the day when the sun's angle is greater, I mean, less than 60 degrees, you have all this energy pouring in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, just if you have a large awning or porch, like in the south, it was common to put a large porch on the north side of the house because we were so far south in Florida, we actually get as the sun comes up and goes down in July, a lot of energy pouring through the north. But especially the east and west sides to have big porches uh, to prevent the sun from coming in or have trees arranged so that those last three hours or first three hours of the day, you're not getting any sunlight in, but in the winter months coming from the south side, you would be getting sun coming into the to the building. Absolutely, yeah. and I think we've all been tricked by the sun, too, where you'll be in, let's say, Florida or a tropical location. It'll be overcast, and you'll be sitting outside all the day, and you'll come in, you'll either be burned or have a little bit of a tan, and you're thinking, how did that happen? It was overcast, but that's just how powerful the sun is as you're mentioning especially during certain parts of the day um now do you know of any ancient civilizations or civilizations pre-modern times that um somehow utilized solar power obviously not solar panels like we have but something that created energy that they used to power things do you, do you know anything like that well my just for solar hot water, uh, there was a lot of old civilizations that used uh, for solar hot water, but I don't know of any ideas of electrical energy, uh, you know, that was created back then. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, concentrated type energy. It's supposedly Armenians. About this, but some fleet was coming to invade Rome or something like that, or it could have been Greece. I'm not sure, but he had all the shoulder, soldiers sign their shields up real well, mm-hmm. and he had some sort of signal to direct the, the reflection onto each boat, uh, one nice. at a time, to set the boats on fire. And uh, that idea of reflecting that light, to, 
you know, is, it, to use it to set the boat on fire. There's a lot of controversy, and people have tried to recreate that, whether it really happened or not. You know, in the Pyrenees and uh, uh, the Alps in France, the French have created a bunch of reflectors that have actually made... Oh, we're losing your time. You're breaking up a little here. Okay, yeah, that's I saw... Actually... Can you hear me now? Yeah, we yes, can hear sir. you now. You were just breaking up for a second. But you were mentioning um, the solar or the um, uh, the ship with the shields and them reflecting the light, and they tried to recreate it, and um, they couldn't or something like that. Well, I don't think everybody's duplicated that. I have an Indian friend in India that has managed to create reflectors that reflect into buildings of cook food for Indian women so they don't have, I think there's these sunflower things where they collect the energy and he's heated thousands and thousands of meals using solar energy for uh, the Indian army. He's also got permission to develop a solar cremator from the gurus that are over there to actually use solar energy to create cremate people. Mm. And uh, one of the simplest things, there, there's a company called Burns of Chicago that makes solar cookers that you can easily cook with. And I've often used solar cookers and took uh, with a boy, and get let boy Scout or Girl Scout troops barium. And typically, if you start following the sun with it and they also tilt up for the correct angle, you can hit easily bake. You can easily hit 450 or 350 to 450 degrees in these with the glass and all the reflectors reflecting in for a solar oven. Mm. Well, we know how powerful it is as a kid using the, uh, the old magnifying glass and burning leaves and things. So, yeah, that's basically like a Fresnel lens. A lot of people use that, but you got to be really careful of concentrating solar energy uh, because a lot of times you can do damage to uh, solar electric panels or what have you if you concentrate too much energy. Uh, oh, it's I best bet. to have re reflectors if you use them that are sort of crude. Yeah, I've lit I've lit a couple bowls like that myself. So yeah. That's probably the healthiest way to light a bowl, too. You're not getting any butane or any sort of uh, lighter, Taking in all that sunlight. lighter combustion. It's just straight yeah. uh, straight energy. Um, yeah. So back to what we were talking about, though. So I also wanted to ask you, too, um, Is the sun's very powerful. Like we did an episode on the seven ancient wonders of the world. There was a lighthouse um, at Alexandria, um, built by Ptolemy uh, or the Ptolemies. Now, is it possible, they said it was super bright, to, to somehow reflect the sun where it would be so bright where you would be able to see it miles away on a ship? Oh, absolutely. Uh, like I said, the French in the Pyrenees developed reflectors that had a higher power than the, uh, actually on the sun on a pinpoint spot. And I used to teach a, course on desert survival in the, when I was in the military. And the, the one most important thing you could have of all was a mirror, mm -hmm. because you can actually reflect over the horizon. A plane that can't see you, you could reflect and, and reflect the light over the horizon. The second most thing was a flashlight. 
And the third, of course, water. But uh, the most basic thing they taught you, if you didn't know where you were, stay there, don't move, don't go anywhere, don't eat food because it dehydrates you. But there was also techniques of uh, collecting water in the desert. You could, like, uh, put your urine in a can or put plants, and you would dig a hole, sort of a V-shaped hole. Mm-hmm. And if you had a piece of plastic where you could put over the hole and drop a rock in it, you would essentially have a solar still that the, that the uh, water that would be evaporating from the uh, plants and even your urine in, in this, uh, maybe if you had a cup in there, if you had another big cup, it would go up and uh, you know, be on the condensate on the uh, plastic and then drip down into the, to the uh, bowl. Mm-hmm. And a lot of ancient civilizations uh, knew how to distill water like that. For a long time in Chile, that's how they got the water to the miners up there with solar distillation. Now, the only problem about big distillations back then is you had to have somebody clean it out a lot because you had to develop a method of collecting minerals and stuff at the bottom. You know, In other words, when you evaporate the water out, you're going to have a lot of stuff left behind. Mm-hmm. But it's really a, a, a incredible way of purifying water. In fact, if you take a plastic bottle that's clear or a glass bottle that's clear and you put water in it, the UV light will purify it in about uh, two or three days in the sun. It will actually kill any bacteria in it. Mm. And you you and hike t- you hike a lot. Have you ever done that? No, I don't have time for doing that. I guess if I got in a terrible situation, it'd be more like a camping situation. I'd do that. Uh, but you know, UV light, like for instance, I, when I've had packages because of this coronavirus, you know, mm-hmm. I've have them, they put them on the side of my house and I stick them out. I push them with a stick where <laughs> the sun can hit it because the sun UV light will kill anything that's carbon. Uh, so they always talk about, oh, this will last in the sun or that will last in the sun, this plastic or stuff. But I guarantee you anything that has carbon in it will eventually get destroyed by the sun. That's why when we use solar glass for like solar collectors or whatever, we have to use that because anything else like Lexon or any type of plastic will degrade. In fact, they pay extra for solar glass that... Uh, it's called water white, doesn't have minerals in it. For instance, when you see a Coca-Cola bottle, that green comes from the iron in it. And in the old days, when we couldn't buy the special made solar glass, we would look on the edge of regular glass because a solar glass is also tempered. It's designed to take an impact from an ice ball at 52 miles an hour. But the old regular glass would look at the side of it in the if it was blue, Instead of green, that meant they would let more sunlight in. Mm. Like the red in glass comes from gold. Brown glass has copper in it. And I think the old blue bottles used to have milk of magnesia. That's why you don't see many real gold glass, but I mean red glass, because it was came from putting gold in it. Mm. Ah. Yeah, I mean, so bottom line is the sun's super powerful, and even the UV rays that we can't see... Um, are constantly at work and can be used beneficially for us to 
grow things, grow, grow crops, um, kill things. Uh, well, you mean doesn't grow doesn't grow crops? I mean, sunlight does. No, no, but, yeah, that's. I, I just meant the sun being powerful. That's what you know. It does all these wonderful things. Um, but in terms of um, how we've interacted with it, obviously, there's been a lot of sun worship, um, and I think that when you look at the universe now, we know so much more. We've been outside of um, our planet. But back then, maybe, obviously, they didn't have that ability. They could look up at the stars and kind of understand through that. But, um, you know, everybody's studied the sun. There's there's solar observatories in the ancient world and temples and different things. Um, when we look at, the, we don't even really think about the sun, right? I mean, people want to get sun. They want to go out. They want to get vitamin D. They want to, um, you know, they want it. But at the same time, I don't think really, I don't think people really, think about the sun in terms of what it actually does for us um and it's pretty much our life source so well all carbon life basically comes from the sun mm-hmm. and you know the mayans they knew that the sun actually had a 2600 year rotation of its earth just like the sun rotates around the i mean the earth rotates around the sun 365 days, they were very into the fact that Venus had an 854-day rotation, but they knew about the elliptical. It's sort of like a figure eight that was pulled apart, rotation of the sun Mm. uh, around in its own orbit. But the thing that always used to amaze me when I would go out to talk to people about solar energy, because especially being here in Florida, you know, where we had a lot of solar energy. But, you know, if a house wasn't underneath a tree, pretty much in the summertime, you didn't have to worry. So if I was out at a house or if you have somebody that pretty much from about November 21st to January 21st, if your house isn't shaded, you're not going to have a problem. But I used to take these site selectors with me and it was amazing to see the sun's path from basically about September 21st to March 21st. And in the northern climates, they even have these site selectors that are are even uh, expanded period of time. But I was just amazed how many people would tell me, oh, the sun comes up and goes down there. (laughs) You know, like, for instance, the sun comes up due east and goes down due west on March 21st and September 21st. And... Of course, it's coming up in the, for instance, where I'm at on June 21st, way in the uh, northeast. And from being directly overhead, it's only tipped eight degrees to the south, and then it goes back to the northwest. In the reverse in the summer, where it's coming up way to the southeast, only coming up about 26 degrees above the horizon, and then heading to the uh uh, south west but people would just be really say oh it comes up here and goes down there and this, this house is always it, it's just amazing how ignorant they are mm-hmm. well we know people <laughs> they ain't the brightest sometimes let's so let's get into um your background with solar energy how you got into it and uh you know how how you spent most of your career in the field 
Well, one time when I was in mush, uh, doing mushrooms in a sacred ceremony in Mexico, I had this dream about this Mexican goddess or woman or something. It was amazing. She had gold teeth, and she showed me this crystal, and all the energy would come from the sun. Well, later, when I went to St. Louis, and we were in a house at on McLeod and number one Taylor, Taylor Street. It had been on the Maharaji's house during the World's Fair. And we were actually growing mushrooms there and showing people how to do it. This was back in about 74. And uh, I actually knew absolutely nothing about solar energy, but there was a place where people would share things and it was called the sharing place. And people would go there to learn yoga or different things. And one of my friends had a solar cooker, and that really amazed me. And then when I went to Florida, I taught for three years, and I taught my students back when the first energy crisis happened how to make solar collectors for heating the water for the school. And then I started working with Dr. Eric Farber, who was I'm in the Solar Hall of Fame. I was the 44th or 45th person put in, but Dr. Farber and, and Farrington Daniels and about two others were the first people of the Solar Hall of Fame in 1956. He was an interesting character. He uh, learned English in Austria, and he came to the United States uh, at Washington University, and he was actually in the Austrian Army when the Germans used them when they invaded Poland and he couldn't stand what they were doing. And he got to Norway when he was supposed to go home on leave and he was the last boat out of Norway to the United States. And he was a famous scientist that developed a lot of uses of solar energy. And California had been a hotbed of solar pool heating, but Florida had been a hotbed of solar uh, water heating because of the thermosiphon collectors that where the water, the collector's above, and it naturally rises above to a tank. And so when the first solar boom started in the 79-86 period, I used to go to all the seminars, that, that the, and he would always be teaching the basic stuff at them. And the reason I went there was people come from all over the country, and I wanted to hear what their experiences were and what they, you know, from them. And so later... I wrote a lot of books on solar energy, uh, training manuals. There was a real dead period after 86 because the solar industry got hit by two things. We lost the 30% tax credit because of Reagan didn't extend it. And then two months later, another calamity was that oil prices plunged from $36 a barrel to 9, 10, 11. So everybody thought the energy crisis is over. It was sort of really ignorant because the fuel at their gas didn't make any difference anymore. Carter had outlawed using diesel fuel for uh, generating utility power. This may, may uh, be amazing to you, but most utilities were actually using oil to make uh, electricity uh, for generation. And then they everybody switched to coal. And the only person that was left that kept using uh, oil was Hawaii still uses oil in the form of diesel for generating electricity there. Of course, they have tremendous amounts of solar hot water and uh, solar electric in Hawaii. And it was sort of like the industry died for a long time, except for solar pool heating, because 
solar pool heating versus natural gas for that big of water will pay for itself in like less than three years. You know? Yeah, that stuff ain't cheap. Who's the who's the leader um, in the U.S. in solar energy? Like which state, and then also which country in the world is is, is leading the way? Well, I would say if you refer to solar hot water, it's probably Israel and the Chinese, and a lot of people use it. Uh, California has been a leading state, and New Jersey, uh, Florida. There's a lot of states. The thing I say is to take a look at the technology. Because the thing that's a, to me that's really important, especially if you're buying solar electric power, is to make sure of your investment. For instance, uh, if you look at solar electric panels, they're warranted typically for 25 years. But a warranty is no good if a company doesn't stay in business. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's, if you're on the stock market, you have to honor your warranty. If you're not on the stock market, you can just change your name and start over again. But if you're on the stock market, you have to order your warranty. But if you're one trick player, for instance, like Solar Tech was the largest company in the world right. or about five years from China and they went out of business. I did a big job for a building that Warren Buffett had and I was directed to put those panels on against my wishes. And then you have the biggest company in the United States that came out of uh, Arco, and then it became uh, Siemens, and then Shell Power, and, and Solar 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 World, and they went out of business, and they made a great collector, but they weren't. Nobody's there to honor the warranty. That's why I say pick somebody like LG, Panasonic, Hyundai, somebody that on the stock market that makes cars or. Uh, TVs or something else, they'll stay on the market because, for instance, I've used GE panels before and BP panels, and both of them went out of business, but they honored their warranties. They had to because they're on the stock market. Mm-hmm. Now, the other technology I like best is a company called uh, Solar Edge, and other people have this type of technology too, where they put DC optimizers on the roof. And what these DC optimizers do. It's in the old days, if you had like, say, 15 solar panels on a roof or 20, they were these different strains. And if one of them, they're put together to raise the voltage really high. These aren't 12 or 24 volt panels. These are 40 volt panels. So instead of the wire having to be huge, like the size of your little finger, it can be like almost like household wire, like uh, say 10 gauge or 12, uh, 10 gauge wire or eight. And uh, the uh, you know these are these are very high voltage panels because the higher the voltage is the the harder it pushes. It's like having a water tower up in the air. You know, 12 volts is going to push twice as hard as uh, because it's higher than uh, 24 volts. That's why most remote systems or grid non-grid systems use uh, 48 volt systems. But, t- but they're typically using ch- charge controllers that take these 40-watt panels and actually uh, rearrange the pa- power to come out at 24 or, tw- or uh, 48 volts. But the nice thing about this solar edge system is 
unlike the strings I was talking about before, if one panel gets shaded, it doesn't affect any of the others. And you can see what each panel is doing with the solar edge equipment. In the case, most of the people you can denote, but you can monitor not only the homeowner, but the installer and even the manufacturer can monitor each and every single panel. And these, this enables you later to connect to battery systems. Now the battery systems are real expensive now. And uh, especially for like on grid systems, see they're, they're sort of like two types of systems. There's a simple DC off grid system, like say if somebody just wants to pump water, well you can hook, there are certain pumps that you can hook the uh, solar panel directly to a DC pump in a well and just let it pump water. Uh, because DC, unlike AC, is, is variable speed, and it's perfect for DC pumps because the solar panels, the interesting thing of it is, they don't lose their voltage no matter how much sunlight there is. If, if you're in full sun or if it's raining, the voltage stays the same. It's the amperage that's going up and down. So amps times volts equals power. Mm -hmm. So if you have a DC pump, it just slows down. Now, they're really great for water troughs and animals uh, and doing like the old windmills where you put a tower up in the air to get water pressure. The other simplest thing is like solar lighting. If you want to light a light up outside like a billboard or a sign or something, you can use these little lighting controllers. And the advantage there is that your solar panel is actually the photo cell, like, you know, on the type of these uh, light poles where they turn on at night. Right. And you're just hooking up the power directly to DC lights. You're, you don't have to have an AC inverter. And so what happens is you hook up to the battery, you hook up to the DC lights, and then there's settings to set it for how long you want to be on at night. Like at my office, I used to set it for six hours in the evening and 10 at two in the morning. And a lot of these things have deep cycle disconnects. So if we ran into a real cloudy day and after six hours at night, two in the morning, it was not above power, it just disconnects. But most of the off-grid systems, the invert, you're going to be using invert inverters that are going to change the DC power to AC, and you're typically going to have a battery charger in there too. So let's say you run a generator, like I did a system for a guy down in Pagonia, and the only time he ran the generator was when he was doing the dryer in his house. So, so the power when a generator comes on goes directly through the inverter to the load, and the excess power, if there's any, then charges the batteries. So you're having a battery charger. A lot of people uh, on remote islands and places like that, they'll run the generator to power really big loads. And when it's running, it's also charging the batteries in the, in the uh, solar system. A lot of people have remote hunting camps will like uh, have this inverter with a battery charger and they may not have many solar panels just to maintain it when they're gone. A lot of these little solar panels you see that people use for batteries, for fishing boats, or what have you, are just designed to uh, maintain the battery system while, while they're gone or gone away. They're just a maintainer. 
But the thing that's important now is to understand about the tax credits and the fact that they're going to be going away. And one of the things I wanted to show you is how to understand. Yeah, be before we get into that, I just have two quick questions, though, before we get into the tax stuff. Um, yeah. One of them is how long does a normal quality panel last? Like how many years, if it's years? And then two, if stuff goes haywire and we lose the power grid or whatever how many of those people that have solar power are fully sustainable and how many of them do you think are or what percentage still are half off the grid or part off the grid or whatever Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, those are good questions. Number one, the first solar panel ever made about 1950 by Bell Labs is still working. Mm. And the single, the single crystal technology, if it's well made, should last 50 years, especially if it's made by German or American companies or Canadian companies, or if you have the factory in uh, China being run by Germans or Americans, the... Uh, and they're using single crystal. Now, polycrystalline panels have a large, uh, pretty good record, too. And some of the warranties are 25 years or so, and they're uh, really good warranties. Now, 90% of the people that have these systems in the United States are what are called grid-connected systems. Mm -hmm. Where the grid is the battery. When your, your transformer that's outside your house transforms the power down in your house or it blow everything up because that's super high voltage. Mm -hmm. But when you, if you're producing more power than uh, you're using, the transformer works the other way. It sends the power back. It transforms it up. So transformers work both ways. You send electricity in one side. It transforms it down. You send it in the other side. It transforms it up. And, uh, Let's say you're at your house and you're, you just have a straight grid-connected system and you produce 30 kilowatts that day. Well, maybe you use 16 in your house. The utility has no idea that you use those 16. Hmm. But you, you produce 14 more than you were going to use during the day, right? Mm -hmm. So those 14 go back to the utility and they put a meter in that shows how much went in that day and how much came out, just like your regular meter, but it's reading two numbers. Now, your system is actually showing you what it's producing that second in time. If you look at it, like say 12 o'clock during the day, you'll see what it's producing, whether it's full sun or rain. And even if it's raining hard, it may be, uh, say a 5,000 watt system, still be producing 500 watts of power. But so, okay, you, you use 16. They have no idea of that. You do. And you have a historical record of everything you produced and also each day. But you set, say, uh, 14 back. Well, maybe they set 12 in, so they owe you for two that day. 
Now, if you don't have batteries and the grid goes down, you're out of luck. You've got no power. Right. And, of course, remote systems, you have to have batteries, and most remote systems are what are called hybrid systems. They will also have a generator. Uh, the best generators to get are these, like Honda or Yamahas, that are called inverter generators that actually are DC generators, and they're changing it into AC for the house. But a lot of people now are getting uh, an on-grid system that will actually have a battery with it. And that's because some utilities have started turning. Well, if the power goes off like in Florida, that's great to have. You know, when I was working in solar, every time we had a hurricane, for the next two years, I would sell a lot of systems with batteries. Mm -hmm. So in case the grid went down and they would forget about it. Now, a lot of these systems now that they're putting in, you know, the battery's just there on standby. But some utilities have gotten really negative towards solar. They're said, oh, you can't put more solar panels up or there's too much on the grid. Or they won't give you the same money for it. It's going back. They maybe are charging you 10 cents. And a lot of utilities will give you 10 cents going back. But then a lot of them will say only give you 5 cents. So there are systems now that like Solar Edge and some other people have Remember, I said you produce 30 kilowatts, right? Right. And you use 16 in your home, but you had 14. In, you, you sense a grid, but you don't send the 14 back to the grid. You use it in your own home later at night. It's set up so that you can use that 14 at night. You don't send anything back to the utility. Of course, if your system isn't producing enough, you know, the solar power is coming in from the utility. So How much solar power do you have implemented in your home? Well, uh, this place where I'm at right now, I don't have any power. But the other house, I have 11,000 watts of power. The utility uh, owes me money uh, at the end of about. each year. Nice. But the biggest thing to do to determine what you're going to need is, number one, get energy efficient. To give you an example, I went to see one person and he had had two bids for $35,000, $36,000. And I told him, I said, yeah, that's right. That's what I would charge. But I said, look, you got a 1988 air conditioner banging around. If you replace that for about $4,000 with a modern energy efficient one with a rating of about 16, I could put you in an $18,000 system and you'll never have a bill. Again, so the guy put in for, uh, modern uh, SER 16 air conditioner and got rid of the old one he had, which they're less efficient as they get old, but it was it was like a very inefficient one. I put him in an $18,000 system and he's never had another bill. Mm. So the idea is put in LED lights, put in energy efficient equipment first, but then you get your utility bill and you look at your bill for the last 12 months and divide by 12, that's going to give you an average of what you're using, right? Mm -hmm. And you also want to look if you're getting charged in tiers by utilities, because a lot of utilities for the first uh, 850 or first 1500 kilowatts, that's real cheap. 
and then everything after that gets expensive. So what I like to do is say, look at the average for 12 months. And usually the best investment is to knock like about 80 to 90% out of that out if you can. And what's great about the, a lot of the systems like Solar Edge and their system, their inverters today, that is that used to be if you put in a 5,000 watt system for somebody, you had to put up somewhere between 490 or 5,200 kilowatts to get that to work. And if they wanted another 5,000 watt system later, you had to put in another inverter and put in about the same amount. But now with a lot of these systems, you can start off with the inverter. You can put in 2,500 watts and increase it all the way up to 10,000. You could just add on to the system. And not only that, see these panels are usually made of cells and how you cut the cells and put them together determines the voltage. Well, they're usually 60 cell or 72 cells. The so 72 cells are used on flat roofs and ground mounts a lot. And for instance, if you put in a system and it has 62 watt uh, cells in it and you put in a 300 watt module and the manufacturer comes out with 320, you can add it. Not only that, as long as it has the same number of cells, uh, 60 cells, you can add any manufacturer. Mm -hmm. You can put all sorts of different manufacturers up and you can monitor every one. Now the 72 watt cells, like I said, are used a lot on ground mounts or on uh, flat roofs because they're a little bit more difficult to carry up on a roof. Now the interesting thing about the tax credit that people take advantage of if they do ground mounts. I built a lot of barns for, uh, I, didn't, I didn't build them. I had a construction crew build a, a barn for the farmer or build sheds. Like one guy I did a couple of years ago, he parked his tractor, uh, his pickup truck, his boat, and two cars underneath. And that all counted for the tax credit. There's nothing in the tax credit that says how high your ground mount has to be or have, has to be made. Now, the nice thing about some ground mounts is it makes it easy to tilt, especially if you have a small home. You can have a spring, fall, winter, and summer position and change the tilt about three or four times a year real easily. I had a huge, those uh, panels that are, I've got 3,000 watts on three ground mounts, or about 3,300 over at this one house, and by myself, I can change the tilt in uh, about two minutes. And if I have somebody helping me, I can change the tilt in uh, about less than a minute. And uh, But you can take advantage of that fact that you can uh, get your whole roof paid for. Uh, I mean, the whole mounting system if you need it for like a carport or a garage or workshop and uh that's very common and uh a lot of people could take advantage of that and get the tax credit on that and then on florida another thing we're exempt from sales tax and property tax so if you're buying the equipment for that shed or for that uh uh mounting system you don't have to pay sales tax on it. Plus, it's taken off property taxes. Now, there's a website called DSIREUSA. D 
S-I-R-E-U-S-A. D is in Delta, S is in Sierra, I is in Indigo, R is in Roger, and E is in Echo, USA. That site explains about the federal tax credits, but it'll also show you in your particular state if there's any benefits or credits that you can get. Another interesting aspect of this, and let's say trees were shading your solar panel. If you cut them down uh, and you get the uh, tree man or the solar guy to say they had to be cut for solar. In other words, if it was shading at any time of year, from seven in the morning to seven in the evening, any time of year, uh, if you needed to cut that tree or whatever, that counts for the tax credit too. Hmm. And sometimes modifying your roof, like some people will change from a shingle roof to a metal roof, and they can get sometimes part of that for the solar tax credit. See, here's the interesting thing about the tax credit. It's 26% this year and 22% next year. If a person was, say, a policeman and their spouse was a nurse or they were a doctor and their spouse was a teacher, and even if they're going to do the solar system later this year, just like if they built a house, mm -hmm. they can go to their employer and add more exemptions. See, an itemized deduction, you can only get uh, the next year like interest, hmm. like if you borrow money, since the solar system is attached to real property, in other words, it's supposed to stay there when you leave, technically, I guess you could take it off the roof and go, but... Right, it's a fixture. I mean, I'm in real estate and... Yeah, yeah, right. So what that means is... It's like a ceiling fan, like it's attached to the house. You can put in the contract that you're going to take it with you if you want, but for the most part, if it's not negotiated on in the contract, then it stays with the house. And here's another good thing about real estate too. Say you're selling a house and somebody has a horrible old air conditioning heating system and the new owner says, look, I want to put this in the contract and I'll pay to put it in. They're actually going to be ahead from a cash flow position because uh, what I'm trying to tell you is if you start pulling these credits out and say you've got a 10-year loan for the solar, mm -hmm. uh, you immediately are going to have close to 50% of the money back the first year and the cash flow starting by your withholding taxes that first year. Now, you have to fill out the form, say, for 2020. When 2021 comes around, you fill out this form but your savings should be about 15% a year if it's sized right. Mm -hmm. And the itemized deduction should be about 5%, and you're getting 26% back from the federal government, which is dollar per dollar. Like if you spent $10,000, you're getting $2,600. Now, the unfortunate thing, if you aren't working and don't have any tax liability, like, say, some poor person living off Social Security in a home, then they, they can't get that money. Now, if you had something like uh, an IRA or some money coming due that you're pulling out that the federal government's going to get, or you've just sold a business or something you're going to have to pay taxes on, then that would make time sense to get it, and it also carries forward. Now, when this tax credit ends in two years, 
businesses will still have 10% in utilities. But right now, also, a business has a five-year depreciation. Uh, you can depreciate the equipment over five years uh, if you have solar equipment. And it always amazes me where people will say, well, I'd really love to get it, but I can't afford it. And I don't know if you've ever read that book, and he also has a lot of YouTube videos. He's a Japanese gentleman that lives in Hawaii. I can't think of his name now, but the book was called Rich Man's Son, Poor Man's Son. Mm-hmm. And he explained why he, he sort of had two fathers. Well, one father was always poor and the other was rich. And the reason was the, the poor father would never, ever use money or borrowed money except when he had to for his house and his car. But the rich father knew that there were certain situations he could borrow money from a bank and actually invest it and make money. Right. It'd be like, let's say I told you you could borrow $10,000 from a bank at 6% interest right now. You'd probably get it at 4 mm-hmm. But let's say I told you that. Well, if you could make 15% interest in another bank, your solar system, you'd be crazy not to put it in, right? Right. Mm-hmm. As an investment. But people just don't learn that in home economics. I mean, it's just crazy. Uh, yeah, the my- lack of common sense. They don't even know about interest. Like, I'll never forget one time I got a credit card. My secretary said, oh, you got a $10,000 you could spend on your credit card. You can go out and spend ten grand." I said, don't you realize you got to pay it back? Yeah. Let's go paint the town red, baby. Yeah, I mean, in, in our home economics class, they taught us how to bake snickerdoodles and <laughs> stuff <laughs> Which like, I'm still doing today. <laughs> stuff like that. But, um, yeah, so I, I do want to go back, though, because you kind of answered it, but we kind of strayed away from because of the tax stuff that we just went over or you went over. But um, so you would say 90% of the people that use solar power are still dependent somewhat on the grid and 10% are completely not dependent on it, or even that 10% is there still some sort well, of... Well, let me let me say this. Back in the... Uh, late 80s, especially the 90s, and up to about 2006, most of the people using solar were having to do it off-grid. Mm-hmm. And there weren't very many people doing it. Most of the people were just doing and repairing solar hot water systems from the 80s or the solar pool heating was thriving. Right. Like I said, even versus natural gas, it paid for itself in three to four years. But a lot of people were using it in remote places, and I was doing it because of uh, that. Now, I made a tremendous amount of pit, uh, money in Y2K uh, because of people really freaked out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the late 80s and the 90s, you know where most of the solar panels were being used? Where? Humboldt and Mendocino County in America by the pot growers. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, they would actually have meetings at places and say, we're having a, a meeting tonight about energy. And there was a couple of companies in the Bay Area that were making a fortune selling solar panels because people were, were off-grid and, and it was the pot growers off-grid. In fact, one time I got a letter from the feds. They had found this water pumping system I had sold to somebody, and it was a solar water pumping system where they're pumping in water out of a creek for solar panels. And I said, look, I just sent it to this address. The person sent me cash 
in the mail and they sent me an address to send it to and I sent it to that address. I don't know who it was or anything. So this was before right. like, you know, computers were really took off and data and that kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh for instance I put a well pumping system down in the Dominican Republic. It was pumping water from five hundred feet deep. It was for a goat farm where the goats would not give any milk. Uh they were they were uh, used to weed the aloe vera and the sisal uh, fields, and they would move them, uh, but there was no water. When I was down there working in this town, I only got about two two gallons of water to drink a day. And it, the south side of the Dominican Republic is like Arizona or New Mexico. The north side toward America is like a tropical jungle, but the south side is just unbelievable uh they call it i think the savannah area and uh so i was doing a lot of off-grid systems because you couldn't connect to the grid mm -hmm. it wasn't legal to do it and finally you were able to connect to the grid and i was doing some of the first systems in where there were 48 volt systems without batteries and then uh some companies started developing these high voltage systems that you could uh connect to the grid, especially out of Germany, because the original thing, all this came out of Germany, uh, and, and uh, it's one of the biggest plants in Germany, it was really interesting, was built in this place, when they started digging things up, they found Roman coins, and it had been a Roman fort, but uh, the Germans developed this system that the only place it's ever been done in the United States was my hometown in Gainesville, where it's called a tariff system. In other words, you could rent somebody's roof. A farmer was making more money on their barns or on their land putting up solar panels, just like the farmers that have windmills on them, than they were off their cattle. Mm. And uh, see, in Gainesville, we would rent roofs on top of Best Buy and all these different stores and put solar panels up there, and they weren't even getting the power. This power was not even going in the building. It was going back to the grid. Mm. And that was called, uh, and the Green Party in Germany got that started over in Germany. Uh, and it was like where the, you were actually connecting your power to, and it was feeding into the grid, but it wasn't even going into your house or the building that it was on. Mm. This is called a tariff system. And you could set that up and in Gainesville, for an example, if we do that, I could say, okay, that energy could go to a charity. It could go to, say, right, uh, right. Big Brothers and Big Sisters. You could tell the utility company that that energy would go to anybody. So there was a lot of ground mounts, and Gainesville became famous. We're the only place in Florida that had what's called a feed-in tariff. But... Uh, the utility made a couple of disasters here, especially with a biomass plant that they tried to do that turned into disaster. So they cut out that program. But we still, if you connect to the grid, you can get the same money that you send back as they charge you for until the end of the year. Like, if, for instance, when I produce more power than them, at the end of the year when they total it up, if I produce more than them, uh, they only give me about half of what it's worth. Mm-hmm. But more and more people are getting battery systems and, uh, you know, going to 
especially now with the lithium ion and especially the big Generac company, Generac, that makes generators, has come out with a system to use an inverter and uh, batteries with their generators. So everything's moving in that direction, but it but it's sort of real slow. And the one thing I can tell people about batteries that I learned the hard way back during when you couldn't connect to the grading batteries, it's always better to do one string of batteries. Never try to use smaller batteries and put two strings. It's like when you look at a battery, think of it as a, a water, like a glass of water. Mm-hmm. And if you connect them in series, you're increasing voltage, just like you do solar panels. But it's always better to have bigger batteries and higher amp hours in that battery than to have two strings. Because what happens if one cell dies in a battery, within a day, it'll kill every battery in that string. Mm. And then in a week or so, it'll kill the batteries in a parallel string. Yeah. Now, if you're going to check your batteries a lot and, and work on them, the lead-acid batteries are good, but you have to add water to them. And what I tell people, uh, batteries, if you think of them like a glass of water, the reason you don't add uh, old ones to new ones is because that glass of water gets smaller every year. So if you put a new one in, or a new string, it's going to act like the old batteries. And... Uh, you have to check the water more and more often, uh, almost after three or four years on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. Where the AGM batteries, there's a company called uh, Full River, makes some great AGM batteries that you don't have to check the water on, and they're at a great price now. And it's actually a Chinese company, but they make great batteries but they private label for all these other companies. They private label for Rolls. They private label for Trojan. Because a lot of people probably know about Trojan. They're usually, if you're going to use batteries, you, you never, unless it's a single battery, use a 12-volt battery because car batteries are no good. Uh, they're designed for a lot of amp hours at once. Typically, a motive power battery like a uh, golf cart battery and if you said golf cart battery, everybody would know what you mean. And there's another battery that's generic called an L16, which is like two golf cart batteries sitting on top of each other. And you probably don't know what L16 means, but anybody in the battery trade would know what it means. They're floor sweeper batteries, and they're using the heavier weight. So a lot of people that are putting in these battery systems would use like, say, eight L16s if they're putting in a big battery system. Uh, typically 400 amp hours at 48 volts. But to save money, they're buying these uh, 40 volt panels and then using charge controllers from people like Morningstar or Outback or uh, some others that convert that high voltage to say 48 volts or 12 volts. Because it makes it real cheap because when I was in the solar business in the 80s, around 86, in the early 80s, it was like $12 a watt, okay, per watt. In the uh, 2006, it was down to about $4 a watt. Now, 
these commercial jobs, the price is less than 30 cents a watt. And the installers can get panels for less than 90 cents a watt, uh, typically. Now, of course, you have to buy mounting hardware, you have to invite inverters ever, but you see how radically the price has dropped. That's why solar electric has sort of made solar hot water obsolete because of the dramatic drop and also water heater heat pumps. These new water heater heat pumps that are made by all the water heater manufacturers, they cost about twice as much as a normal water heater. But they cut the cost of heating hot water with electricity by 70%. And what's great about the South, they also do it by taking the heat out of the air and the moisture, so they're dehumidifying and cooling the air. Like I had a back room in this building where I told you where I had the 10,000 watts, and I had to re-roof my house, and I had a solar hot water, and I, I took it off and actually added one of these water heater heat pumps because I needed to air condition that room and there wasn't any way to get air conditioning into that big room. So this water heater, you know, a refrigerator is taking the heat out of your refrigerator and dumping it outside, right? Mm -hmm. This water heater is taking the heat from the air and putting it into the water heater. Okay. And they also have a hybrid mode or electric backup. So they're really great, but so what? So this is actually air conditioning and dehumidifying that room. Yeah, and that's that sort of made solar hot water obsolete in Florida because if you look in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the only well up until the 50s, you didn't have hot water in Florida if you didn't have solar. So. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. Um, my thing would be now with everything that's going on out there, um, assuming we get through this and we get back to some sort of normalcy, I think solar might be a good option. I, I think the only thing that could really, if anything, like I, I, and I don't think this way, but like cat, cataclysms and catastrophes and things like that, um, you look at what's going on, it might be nice to have solar power now in case something does happen, or it might be, um, you know, nice to have other options. But I well, think yeah, like I'd like to make a comment about that. Okay. I've done a lot of zero energy homes. In fact, I did the first ones ever done for the federal government, the first zero energy homes that were ever done. It was the first ones were toward it, zero and then zero, and they were monitored by the state of Florida. And by the federal government, I was told actually how much to put in because these were new homes for people to move into. Uh, one home, we actually did 130% because the homeowners were so incredibly, you know, efficient in their life and what they did in lifestyle. The other one, it was like 103. But the biggest thing you see is as the heating and cool space goes up, the cost goes up dramatically. Mm-hmm. So these homes were like 2,800 square feet, typically, or almost 3,000 square feet. Now, the average American home in 1950 was 850 square feet. Now it's 2,800. And, and, you know, if you want a solar, a McComber, or what I call a McMansion home, it's going to cost you a fortune. Now, once you get to a tiny home, especially homes under 800 square feet, 
the thing I like about that is, let's say you buy some land mm -hmm. that's off grid, but you can still get there by a dirt road that's near to where you work or something. There's like, uh, say you can uh, drive a Subaru or you can drive a pickup truck or an SUV there. And you know, Mike, that that real estate is going to cost almost nothing mm -hmm. because you don't have grid power there, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And especially a lot of women are, I don't mean to make this sexist or anything, but a lot of people will say, oh, I don't want to drive on a dirt road. Mm -hmm. But you can put in these septic tanks now that are plastic that you put in, put, put a well in, and if you put a tiny home there, uh, you're going to bought the land for almost nothing, right? Right. Okay. And so if it's under 800 square feet, if you can get LP gas there, like say a tank, or you could take the little tank in the back of your pickup truck, or even a lot of companies will deliver it uh, for like heating or maybe your, your stove, then you can easily have batteries in a solar system and it, it doesn't cost you very much money at all. And uh, especially if you're smart enough to orient it at your home, because once you get under 800 square feet, the heating and cooling cost is almost nothing. Even for a small home that's under 1,200 square feet, it's almost uh, hardly anything if you orient at your house right. And that's why I say, look at this program called the Building America program. The Building America program, if you look online, divides the country up into five climate zones. And a lot of people, people do incredibly stupid things because it, it would be great in Cleveland, but it's done in Florida. Mm -hmm. For an example, one of the climate zones is the hot, humid south. The other climate zone is the dry, hot desert area of the southwest, Arizona, Central Valley of California. Mm -hmm. Well, out there, they use swamp coolers a lot that actually blow, or evaporative coolers that blow moisture in the home to make them more comfortable. Well, that would be insane to do in the south. Yeah. And... There's also the zone of what's called the marine zone, which is typically the Pacific Northwest. And then you have sort of uh, the middle Piedmont area. And then you have another zone that is the extreme cold area, which is typically uh, the New England area and the uh, uh, stretching through Montana and that way over to Washington about to Seattle through Montana and that area. Well, something that would make incredibly good sense, say in Montana, would make absolutely no sense down in Arizona. And even a local climate, like you go up to the Grand Canyon, uh, what is it, Kingman or that area in Arizona, should have a typically different type of design than somewhere in, say, Tucson near the border. So and there's microclimates that you have to be aware of, too. Uh, like, for instance, if you were on the coast in California and you're facing panels, you think, oh, I'll face them due south on a flat roof or ground mount. But actually, it'd be better to face them about south-southwest because of all the fog in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Just like you might be up on a mountaintop 
somewhere and you could face due south, but if you were down in a valley, maybe you're in the fog in the morning, so you would face things southwest. And uh, so that's uh, certain microclimates to take into consideration. And if you, there's NASA websites and you can look at for the solar radiation in your area and all sorts of tools. And if you're getting a solar contractor, you know, you, the good thing is probably, you know, look at a couple of different bids. Uh, but I would recommend staying away from these, uh, what are called micro AC inverters on a roof. I don't like them and, and stay with the DC and uh, where you're just doing the DC uh, optimizers because you don't have hardly any of the electronics. It's much, much simpler. And then you have a, one central inverter down below. To bring it back to what I was mentioning, though, and you kind of, you know, jumped into it for a second, but uh, when all this blows over and everybody gets back to some sort of normalcy, um, the grid obviously is the grid, but um, when you look at potential cataclysms or catastrophes, not that it probably is imminent or likely, but why not be prepared as we can see right now with everything that's going on? We weren't prepared for this, but um, let's say... Uh, the only thing that I think that could affect solar energy would be possibly, I mean, what, like an asteroid or a comet impact that might blow up tons well, of stuff? Well, there's to... a possibility of electromagnetic impulse from the sun. EMP or a solar flare, you're right, that that could be it. A... And if that happened when you were on that side of the thing, uh, your solar panels might survive and might not. But if I was in a hurricane area or somewhere where there'd be earthquakes like in California, I would want the battery backup to my system and have the battery backup, uh, or at least the ability, because you can buy these systems and put batteries on there that are just sort of on standby or an emergency, and they'll last a long time because they're not being used. Of course, on an off-grid system, you're going to have to have batteries. But, uh, you know, I would look like Say if you're in an area that had a hurricane, or because if you mount these solar panels right in, in Florida, we have to mount them for hurricane wind loadings. Like I tell people, I laugh. I said the structure I use, if it's on your roof, will make it actually stronger. And if your house does blow away, when you find your roof, the mounting system will still be on there. <laughs> still pumping solar energy. <laughs> There's no house, but it's still working. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I've done houses out in the islands uh, in the Bahamas that were literally Hurricane Floyd hit. Very few people know about Hurricane Floyd. You know, there's been three hurricanes. They're over 200 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. One of them was Camille that hit Biloxi. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it took stone buildings to the ground. Even weather stations that were supposed to survive, it took to the ground. Uh, there was people going around to hurricane parties and they'd come back to the house and nobody survived except maybe one kid that was found in a mattress in a tree 20 miles away. Damn. And uh, Hurricane Andrew was a 200 miles an hour, but it was only 50 miles wide. And that only went through a certain area really fast. <laughs> yeah, and I remember I was, Andrew, I think I was like, I don't know, I was young, but I, that was uh, 94, 95 believe if i'm not mistaken i don't know yeah something like that and that's why all those 
uh, boa constrictors because it went yeah. through what's called Bullard Bird Row. And, yep. and those Africans started mating with a huge Burmese python, and now they got this hybrid python that's yeah, the African. more aggressive than the African and bigger than the Burmese and eating everything up in the Everglades. Yeah, the African rock python, uh, I've seen some of those shows on Animal Planet. Those things are big enough to swallow a baby, a human baby. Um, well, they sometimes swallow alligators down there and, uh, uh, you know, the alligator could get them, but they don't have a natural enemy. Didn't they think though, isn't the, the thought behind that is when hurricane Andrew hit some like venomous snake or some snake sanctuary places that had all these, uh, got out. Cause obviously pythons, Burmese pythons, well, also, African see, the reason, the reason they call that bird row was, down in, uh, I think it was Kenwood, or I can't remember exactly, but I've d- I went down there done doing solar work before. That's where all the birds were in and the snakes. That's where everybody was importing. Everything was in. It was on the outskirts of Miami near the, the uh, swamp there. Mm-hmm. And so when these buildings got wiped out and blown away, the snakes and the birds all got loose in the, in the, like I say, the Burmese, which was big and non-aggressive, mated with the African that was smaller and super aggressive. And now they got a super aggressive hybrid snake in the Everglades. And you're allowed to hunt it all year long. There's rewards. And sometimes I'll have hunting parties, but uh, it keeps spreading. They've developed a couple of tricks to get it. But then the next, the hurricane that nobody hardly knows about was Floyd. Mm-hmm. Floyd happened in I'll find it 1999. It was literally 200 miles an hour, 300 miles wide. I was doing solar over in the Tampa Bay area, and I could feel the winds that day. But that hurricane went through the Bahamas and literally cut islands in half. It blew every single dock away. Mm-hmm. If September hurricane- 7th, 1999 was Hurricane Floyd. Yeah, if Floyd had come across Florida, it would have been like a bulldozer. This state would still be recovering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Category uh, five hurricane or category four, excuse me. Yeah. I mean, uh it's just like if you follow earthquakes, they uh upgraded the earthquakes after one in Africa. That one level up now, it's uh it's it's higher and the same thing with uh hurricanes after camille they started upgrading hurricanes the speed of what they were because camille hit gulfport and biloxi in mississippi and that came through in 72 when i was training in jungle warfare school in louisiana and uh so if there's a disaster or something like that coming it's it's uh, really worth w- worthwhile to uh, would like, plan for that. Would sediment up in the atmosphere uh, block out any like how powerful are the the panels at picking up the sun? Would it, if there was let's say I mean at the end of the month we have a, a near Earth object that's passing by. It's pretty close. I think it's in between us and the sun, and it's huge. It would be devastating if it hit. But hypothetically. Let's say something did hit, maybe not as catastrophic. Where um, would all that sediment blown up, and would that prevent the sun from getting down to the solar panels, or would it still do its job? Do you think? 
Well, they think there's two huge, huge meteors, one that hit in Mexico and one that hit in Russia, right. that have made the sky dark for a year. And, of course, Tunguska when Krakatoa and, blew up, yeah. Yeah, you the, know, that had a major effect. And uh, But you'll still be producing solar power. Right, that's but, that's my question with, with the... The, the solar energy still get through the sediment that's that's in oh the- yeah it'll still some of it to get through like for instance solar hot water you have to rise above a certain point of temperature to make hot water like it won't make any hot water in the morning and it won't make any in the afternoon and if you say have 140 degrees during the day it has to rise to a certain temperature to make hot water mm-hmm. but from the time the sun goes up the time the sun goes down whether it's rainy cloudy or foggy there's some kilowatts coming in there's some wattage coming in mm-hmm. now the important thing is if you're especially in a northern climate that you're facing either due west or due east or south best you you can't face it north and expect it to work now in florida we can get a north-facing roof to where I'm at in Gainesville to work about eight months out of the year, and then by the time you get to Miami, if the slopes snow enough, it'll work all year round. Yeah, it's interesting. I've noticed some things too. Actually, my wife pointed this out, and I've it's something I actually had thought about. I just never really put it together. But we grew up in Michigan. Um, Maurice still lives there. I live in Chicago now. But Maurice, um, I think you would admit that even during the summertime in Michigan when it's like nice and sunny, it's there's still this like weird haze. That's that's, it's not truly clear out. And, and here in Chicago, it's right. different when it's sunny. It's very clear. However, at night with the light pollution, it's not so clear. But d- when you look, take those things into consideration, you were mentioning like the Cleveland zone versus the Arizona, uh, uh, dry zone in, in the different zones. Um, how much does that actually affect what's being taken in? Forget about like moisture. Well, there's a big consideration of where you live. Now, uh, one thing I didn't tell quite the truth about solar energy is on solar electric is the colder it is, the better the solar electric panels work. Like when we're doing charge controllers and inverters, say if you could only do 10 panels in Cleveland or Michigan, I could maybe only do nine in Gainesville. Uh, wait a minute. I could do 11 in Gainesville, and down in the tropics, they could do 12 okay. because of the voltage going up. So you, when you put in solar panels, you look for the coldest temperature ever on record. And, and, mm. and those are all set up for the inverters and the manufacturers to size that. They all have programs. It's easy. But going back to what you were talking about, let's take the state of Wisconsin, because I've done some solar and been up there. The lower half of the state is in full sunshine in the winter, where the upper half of the state is in clouds all winter. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had solar electric, you'd still be making some energy, and you could maybe tilt it up for for the wintertime or the time of year to change the tilt. But... uh, the, there he uh, is. <laughs> uh, the uh, solar hot water just wouldn't work at all. If you're going to try to space heat, it'd be idiotic. Another example of that 
was I worked in solar and lived two years in California and the Central Valley where Davis is, Fresno, Mm -hmm. Chico, uh, Modesto, Sacramento, they get this Thule fog in the winter. In the summer, if you saw a crowd, they'd probably bring a band out and have a parade. And that's why I want to mention there's two sorts of sunlight. The where when you're in a dry climate, reflectors will work. They don't work well in in uh, humid climates because of the diffuse light. And in the south, the light is almost like has a yellow tinge to it. Where if you're out in the desert or that central valley in the summer, it's like uh, much more of a white color. But so to bring it back in the winter time, in the winter time, what I'm trying to say, it'd be idiotic to have a space heating system there. Whereas if you go up in the Sierras, if you go up above uh, Grass Valley and up in that area, uh, you're above, you know, the Thule fog, and it would work great in the winter, uh, especially hot water. And that's something to be aware of. The higher you go in altitude the more sunlight there's going to be. You have to be careful, say, if you're up in the mountains of uh, uh, the Rocky Mountains somewhere high, Mm -hmm. in a cold area, not only are you going to get all this reflection off the snow, which is set up to take, but you have to count that the conditions are going to be colder there than, say, if you were down in Denver. Mm -hmm. So you have to sort of plan for that, too, for your solar panels, you maybe have one less in a string than you would down in Denver. But the manufacturers, you know, will give you all that information. Yeah. Lots to consider with that stuff. And I think what's... See what... Go ahead. I just want to say something about when you plant electrical energy for a house, you have to plan on a 1.25 multiplier for electricity. That's just a safety factor. When you do solar, you have to do a 1.56. Well, where does this extra, uh, why are you planning the 0.56? That's called the edge of cloud effect in water. For instance, you could be in a place, a lot of people don't know this, and you're in full sunlight and you're getting really hot because there's a bank shot off of a cloud. So you could be somewhere out in the open and, and, and you obviously know about reflection off water or reflection off sand. Mm-hmm. or reflection off snow, but you could be one place and you're doing pretty well, and then all of a sudden there's a cloud somewhere in the distance and it's doing a bank shot on you. So that's why solar panels and everything are rated for a 1.56 multiplier compared to normal electricity is 1.25. Gotcha. Yeah, actually, that's interesting too. We were talking about, I asked you about the... Lighthouse at Alex, <clears throat> excuse me, the lighthouse at Alexandria when we first started, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, um, and th- everybody's, you know, the big talk back then was about how this thing was able to reflect or reflect or, you know, reflect light super far distances. Alexandria is in Egypt, and um, I mean, it's pretty dry there. I would imagine. I, I don't know Alexandria specifically what it's like, but. Um, it would make sense to have that there where you could see it probably a longer distance with all that, all that moisture in the air. Well, you know, if you look at the older lighthouses too, they made sort of lenses, you know, mm-hmm. that there were these Fresnel lenses and sort of cut like crystals and everything. Right. 
Right. And you could put a little kerosene fire or a little fire in the middle, and it would magnify it and send it way out. Yeah. All the old lighthouses, they didn't have electricity. They were they had little kerosene fires up in them. Yeah. Or some type of fire they were making. And the light was being going through these lenses like magnifying glasses and being shot out. Yeah, so that's like one of the theories too about the lighthouse at Alexandria that they there was a big fire and that there was a mirror behind it. So I've read other things that said it was just a mirror that would reflect the sun and then i've read other things that would say um during the daytime it would reflect the sun and at nighttime it would reflect fire so i mean well yeah i would think that because you're not going to get much power from moonlight <laughs> oh you yeah. could actually right. get a little you could actually get a little voltage from moonlight but you won't get any amperage right um yeah so yeah i mean I, this has been a super interesting talk is there anything else that we didn't get to that you want to talk about here before we wrap it up well, let's see my list here. So, uh, this man comes hey. prepared, folks. Yeah. Well, this, uh, we talked about how to judge if you've got a good site. Uh, one of the things, if you go to Google Maps or Bing Maps, you could actually lay out and measure stuff on the roof. It's amazing. In the old days, I'd have to drive to somebody's house. Right. But in the modern days, somebody called me, and, and I would go to – Bing Maps or Google Maps and look at their house and I would say, sir, do you realize your house is underneath trees? If I come there, we're going to have to cut them down. Or, you know, I could see that, you know, they were in a situation that was fine. Uh, and you could actually lay it out. You could measure on the roofs. Now, some of these solar programs that solar contractors have, uh, they could even take into account stacks and everything and lay it out without even going to your house and like my son is doing a lot of systems in orlando and uh that's the great thing about this coronavirus he uh, he doesn't even have to go in the house if you do pool heating and usually solar electric the most he'd have to go into would be the garage maybe and uh so that's a thing how to determine if you have a good site uh and uh, we talked about the solar and, and being energy efficient first. It's like we're talking, for instance, and I'll just go through this one more time. The difference between having a 100-watt incandescent light bulb and a 10-watt LED light bulb that gives the same amount of light, Right. it's amazing how much you save. Just like I talk about the air conditioning system that I got the guy to change, it ended up saving $14,000. Yeah, we're big proponents of the LED system. Our uncle actually has an LED company working on lights for garages and things like that. And uh, the other thing is you really need to be prepared for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> we're, we're getting ready for it, I'll tell you that. The Walking Dead, real life. Yeah, yeah, well, it's obvious to me that the world is never going to be the same after this. Well, I think there's definitely, at very least, people are going to take way more precautions. And, I mean, I think for for this, it's like I think we could probably maybe figure this out, obviously. I think that they've made some headway. So hopefully that goes, you know, in, in the right direction. But um, you have other things, too, uh, like chronic wasting disease. You, you mentioned zombie. That's, that's a real zombie disease that affects deer and um, – 
those yeah, are... if you ever study about prions and how they found out about the cannibals in Malaysia, that they got them to quit doing it, and then it would recur again. Yeah, I mean, and this is like prion, they prions aren't virus. living, right? Because prions, that's what like mad cow disease, like all that was. Yeah, and uh, for instance, in Europe, when they would have executions, people would gather to drink the blood. And people don't realize how much, quote unquote, Western and civilized people were cannibals, you know, uh, or it, it ate people in the old days. But people would do things like drink the blood from people that were hung or guillotined and all that stuff might occur. I always thought that the bird flu or some type of swine disease that this would happen. And I agree with Bill Gates more than likely than a nuclear war. And these pandemics may come again and again because this coronavirus has, has had four mutations already. And my son's down in Brazil. He's a, a guide on the Amazon. And they thought, and they thought, oh well, maybe when summer comes along, like the flu, it'll go away. But down there where he's at, it's in the 80 degrees all the time, and uh, they're having it down there. So it's not being affected by temperature. Yeah, I think. And hopefully, hopefully we'll prepare for the next one because this is going to be a disaster. Right now, one out of every thousand Americans have it. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Like I said, I mean, the whole point of our show is to help people kind of escape this stuff. It, yeah. But yeah. again, everybody stay safe. Keep your distance. Make sure you have all your essentials. Make sure you have all the medicine ready to go if need be. And just take precautions. Do what the scientists tell you. Do what, you know, um, do, you know, the, the real things that people in, in you know, Obviously, nobody knows exactly what's going on right now, but yeah, I think, well, like I think if we all stay, if we all stay together, I think that you know we'll figure this we'll thing out. We'll overcome this. I'd like to make one comment. You know, uh, solar is important if you're off grid because you don't have an option. If you have grid power, it's really an investment, and especially for utilities, it's a great investment. And a friend of mine that's a broker was telling me because I was amazed at how the price of gold and silver is going down. Mm -hmm. And I called him asking, I said, you know, anytime there's any sort of emergency or stuff, uh, usually gold and silver goes way up. Right. But he said gold and silver and diamonds and artwork, so many people are selling it like crazy uh, to raise money or because they've lost on the stock markets due to margins and everything. Uh -huh. So if you look at it as an investment sort of standpoint, because I always told people, I said, solar energy is not an appliance if you already have electricity right. or hot water. But I said, if you have now, it's a really, really great investment. And especially if you can get the tax credit, you're ahead on the cash flow. And you're always ahead. And you're typically got all your money back on a 10-year loan in five or six years in your head. But if you can't get the tax credits, it's going to take you 12 or 14 years to get a, ret a total return on your investment. Mm. So that's why it's so important to take advantage of this, why it's available to you. And if you look at that with the tax credits and everything, you know, you're getting about 20% per year of non-taxable income. And that's the important thing to remember. A dollar saved is worth more than a dollar earned. 
when you save a dollar, whether you put in a more efficient air conditioner or a more efficient light or so, that may be worth as much as a dollar twenty-five or a dollar fifty earned that can be taxed. Right. So when you're yeah. getting something that's returning, and that's why I say people, you have to look at the after-tax rate of return on your investment. It's not how much money you make, it's how much money you make and get to keep for Uncle Sam gets into your pockets. Right. Good point. Well, Maurice is our resident investor, so weren't you looking yeah, at Yeah, I'll be looking into that stuff. Weren't you, I don't know if I... Weren't you talking about gold with your dad the other day when I called you? Yeah, but I think it's what he was saying, everybody's selling it all because they're trying to get their investments back from the stock market, so Yeah. We'll just have to wait and see. Well, I mean, uh, thanks for coming on and talking about this. I know this is kind of a change of pace of what we normally do. Normally it's all about, uh, you know, Mesoamerican metaphysics and sacred mushroom rituals and that kind of stuff. But I think that this was fun to talk about it and something different uh, that you don't hear a lot of people talking about. So we appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise on the subject. And uh, we'll get you back on again. I mean, maybe next time we'll we'll figure out something new. Well, I was just hoping this would be some way to help people and to educate people about it some and to take advantage of the situation uh, with solar. And being that I'm not in the business anymore or anything, I, I felt like people can trust. I was just trying to give them the best advice I could to make uh, a good choice if they make a decision, and you know, to go solar, that what, the, what are the pitfalls because there's a lot of good companies out there and there's a lot of bad companies and there's a lot of good choices in there. And like I said, if you, if it's an investment, you want to make sure it's secure. For sure. And I, and I do think that you conveyed that. And obviously you're a very sincere person as many of uh, our listeners have known from the other episodes that you've been on. So I don't think that there's an issue there. Um, I forgot. I called you uh Tom Wolf at, by accident at the beginning of the yeah because he's all spiffy tonight. Two great psychedelic writers, but uh, yeah, and I see the fine suit that Maurice has <laughs> on there. You know, uh, we're gonna know, get him. I'll, 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 we're we're gonna get that from a London Taylor. Yeah, we, we're gonna yeah. get him a, a yeah, tuxedo T-shirt. We gotta get him. Yeah. A, yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks again for coming on, Tom. This was super enlightening, and uh, again, we'll, we will have you back on. Everybody, go check out Tom or yeah, Tom's book. I have the link below. Um, I have the link to his Amazon page. I have the link to his website, solarwolf.org. And uh, he also has a Facebook group, which we are in as well, um, uh, about sacred mushroom rituals. I have the link down there. Uh, check us out at Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. Uh, for $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content. We do have two um, uploads on there with Tom. One of them, he's walking us through the... Um, the process of the sacred mushroom rituals and then the other one we discussed uh bufo um alivaris or the uh colorado river toad and, and the f5meo dmt produces so go check those out if you have not already um and check out our website mike and maurice mind and uh that's it we'll catch you guys next time we love you all stay safe and uh peace we're out goodbye